Hello and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is James O'Byrne, Bitcoin core engineer working at Chaincode Labs. Here's the interview. James, I'm a fan of what you are working on over at Chaincode Labs and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stefan. It's good to be here. I'm a fan of your podcast, so it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So look, uh, I thought it would be great to get you on just to talk about a few different things. One of them is this concept, perhaps it's a little bit elusive for some people, but essentially it's what is the true nature of quote unquote power or control within Bitcoin? And there are obviously differing conceptions of this and one example, right? And the point is not to kind of go and bash Angela Walsh, right? But that's one example of perhaps a more kind of top-down view of Bitcoin. And um, from some of her recent appearances, she's made commentary around this idea that, okay, maybe Bitcoin is, or, or and she's speaking perhaps about cryptocurrencies in general, and she's saying, oh, well, look, maybe they're not as decentralized as they first appear to be. Do you have any thoughts on why that might not be a complete view? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, um, I think Angela is a, a really well-spoken and pretty well-thought-out um, uh, thinker in terms of this stuff. And I, I think it's only reasonable to be decently skeptical, um, especially if you're not someone who's necessarily a programmer or has an intuition for how a system like Bitcoin might work. You know, I think it's a good idea to, to ask these questions about uh, who's, who's really in control of these sorts of systems. Um, but yeah, I think uh, power is an interesting word and, and not to get too deep into semantics here, but I think power to me is kind of predicated on forcing someone to do something. And, um, you know, in systems of government where, you know, governments basically have a monopoly on power in society, um, or I'm sorry, a monopoly on physical force. I think that's, that word is very germane, but, um, in a system like Bitcoin, where the participants are all voluntary and the code is all freely available and open and can be forked and modified, um, power, you know, is maybe not the right word, but, you know, even assuming, you know, let's, let's sort of charitably assume uh, some kind of figurative notion of power in the sense of, you know, who is really controlling this system, who's deciding what the rules are. Um, and who's, you know, affecting uh, the participants. Um, and I think that's where things get, uh, get somewhat murky uh, in these systems, say, relative to, um, you know, more conventional financial systems. Right. And ex excellent point, I think, around being able to essentially who is compelled to do something and even if they don't necessarily want to do that thing. And one, I suppose, one aspect that, you know, we can't neglect as well. So, Kind of looking at uh, Angela's recent appearance on Peter McCormack's show, part of the message, part of her message there was this idea of, oh, we need to slow down the integration of Bitcoin into financial institutions, so to speak. Now, I'd suggest at a more fundamental level, the anarcho-capitalist, libertarian, cypherpunk does not seek the, the existing state's approval for Bitcoin, but seeks to create a parallel system. So that's one kind of very fundamental challenge um, that, you know, the cypherpunks would reply back. Um, but perhaps even setting that aside, it's just that question around, is it an accurate view? And I mean, we can go into some examples. So one example Angela brings up is the 
recent, I can't remember exactly when, I think it was sort of September-ish of 2018. So it was the CVE 2018-17144 inflation bug. And so Angela is pointing to how that incorporated some coordination from known core developers such as Matt Corello. So she was saying that supposedly the fact that there were some things only known to a small group of core developers and that, you know, not the broader set of Bitcoin users is an example of why Bitcoin is not that decentralized. How, how do you conceive of that? Yeah. Um, so to your first point about, uh, you know, libertarian cypherpunks not maybe necessarily, uh, you know, giving much consideration to uh, a, a sort of uh, financialization of Bitcoin. I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that in one sense, but I think in another sense that um, realistically to, to bring people into the fold and, and to, you know, if, if say my mom wants to buy Bitcoins or something, you know, there, there needs to be some, uh, some integration there. Um, and we will, I think, see institutions build, you know, on the layer of abstraction of, of Bitcoin in the same way that, um, you know, ISPs built on TCP IP and um, web services built on HTTP. And, and so I, th- I think we have to ex- expect that. And um, I think what sort of complicates things, um, if, if you're in a position like Angela's and you're trying to um, analyze uh, how these things work and ma- make sure that, you know, the, the base of your sort of abstraction pyramid is, is solid, um, then uh, it's a little bit more difficult because, because power, you know, or, or whatever you want to call it in Bitcoin is so finely dispersed. Uh, but we can get a bit more into that. Um, in terms of the, the inflation bug, um, I think that is a really interesting case study to look at because, um, yeah, there were only, you know, five or, or maybe seven of us um, who kind of uh, heard about that um, when it was reported to the mailing list. Um, but I think, you know, one interesting way to frame that is is to think, okay, if, if uh, let's say that your operating system um, had some, you know, critical zero day uh, reported to the developers of the operating system. Um, you know, what, how, how would you want those developers to act? Um, and I, I think like the secrecy, secrecy isn't, isn't really, really the right word here because all the fundamental elements of that situation were public, like the code was public. And so, um, I don't think it's necessarily accurate to say that like, we were keeping a secret. I mean, we weren't going out and like <laughs> broadcasting that there was this, this huge vulnerability, but, but anybody who, you know, could look at the code and, and do careful analysis could see that, you know, that, that narrow possibility uh, of inflation um, was there. And indeed there was one guy, I think one uh, commenter on Hacker News who, who sort of pointed out that that particular vulnerability might, um, extend beyond the denial service and into um, inflation. So, so this isn't like a case where you've got a company and like, you know, they've got like some uh, bad financial data, um, you know, that they're, they're sort of keeping behind closed doors and and not telling anybody. Um, It it may sound superficial, but I don't think it is that this, this information is all public and um, anybody can, can see it. And so I don't think we're necessarily, um, in a unique position other than the fact that, you know, we, we saw it and um, uh, the developers of Bitcoin Core wanted to, 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 to do their best to sort of um, respond accordingly. 
Oh, agreed. Uh, I think it's a great analogy that you draw there on even let's say this was an open source operating system and that there was a small group of developers who knew a, a massive vulnerability there. You wouldn't necessarily want them to go out and publicize that. Um, so uh, in, in fairness to Angela, I don't think she was faulting the treatment of the, you know, that 17144 inflation bug. Um, and I suppose also, you know, though I agree with you, it may also be fair to say that right now not everyone can read the code. And that's that's just a fundamental reality we have to face. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the other things that she talks about is the uh, potential of um, introducing some kind of like official fiduciary system to the development of Bitcoin, uh, in the sense that the, you know that that um, core developers would function as these fiduciaries and be somehow you know officially recognized and um, on the hook and. Well, I think it's really important to realize that that morally um, we are because you know we're in the position of working on the software. Anybody who contributes code to Bitcoin, I think, in in some sense, morally is like a fiduciary. Um, that doesn't mean that introducing some kind of uh, uh, official position or hierarchy or or credentialing um, makes any sense. And in fact, I think that would be really counterproductive because then you sort of solidify. You, you do solidify a real power structure in Bitcoin instead of having this sort of fluid, um, voluntary uh, um, uh, arrangement uh, where contributors can, can come and go. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it is, I can understand the, the impulse to want to uh, um, assign responsibility um, but uh, I just don't think doing it in, in some formalized way um, makes a lot of sense. Right. And I think the other problem there from the kind of cypherpunk point of view here is that introducing, and this is kind of a point that, say, someone like Nick Zabo might make, is that it introduces another whole attack service of, of you know this kind of a political argument surface that if you know, developers were to become fiduciaries and there were additional legal kind of ramifications or obligations placed upon them, that this could become another angle of centralization and attack onto Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, totally agree there. Um, and I think it's it's also worth emphasizing that like in a in a situation like like the um, uh, the inflation bug, you know, she talks about how rapidly a change was deployed to Bitcoin and how, you know, Matt got on the phone to uh, slush pool and said, Hey, you know, here's a fix. Um, I think it's really important to realize there that you shouldn't conflate a sort of rapid response with a command and control structure because um, just because the participants in the system responded really quickly and, and, you know, at each individual step kind of um, voluntarily elected to upgrade the software based on the information they were given, that isn't the same as the core developer saying, okay, now you must run this software, you know, or else you're kicked off of Bitcoin. Um, it's, it's, it's really easy, I think, for it to look like it was some kind of power structure when instead it, it was a sort of rapid realization of, you know, oh, as soon as somebody kind of was, was, was made aware of the bug, it's like, okay, obviously we should, you know, upgrade. So there is, um, it's sort of like a very fine, um, you know, mesh of individuals saying yes or no to a, to a given change. 
Right. So an example, okay, so if I had to kind of explain that in other words, I would say it's something like Bitcoin fundamentally is a peer-to-peer network consensus. So that's kind of like, as you know, guys like Pierre Richard have helped explain and others, many others have helped explain that it's a network consensus and that we all voluntarily run the code. And so perhaps that's one aspect that Angela is not quite uh, conceiving of correctly because ultimately just because you core developers put out some code doesn't mean everyone's going to run it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a totally critical distinction. Um, you know, if you sort of draw the maybe over-exaggerated analog to say like uh, the Federal Reserve, you know, if um, if some rules are changed at the FOMC, uh, I-, I can't opt out of that um, as, a, as a user of the U.S. dollar. Um, I'm, I'm sort of subject to that. And that's that's, I would say, a real exercise of power, whereas if the core and the core developers introduce some new rule. Well, um, I, I can say yes or no to that. And, um, it's, it's definitely tractable to sort of bootstrap, um, a separate system that, that either says no to a given change or makes, makes a, a change that the original code didn't make, you know, as we, as we've obviously seen with the, um, uh, the, uh, Bitcoin cash group. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a really subtle distinction, but I think the key thing to keep in mind is that everyone transacting on Bitcoin, if they're, if they're doing so with a full node, they're, um, opting into their rule set and they can modify that rule set as they, uh, as they like. And I think that's, um, a really critical distinction now. I mean, to, to not be simplistic, I think what gets complicated is you have, institutions that, that build on top of certain systems and um, you have a plurality of uh, large organizations that recognize a certain Bitcoin, right? So if, um, you know, Bitfinex and Coinbase uh, sort of disagree on what, what Bitcoin is, you know, which system, which consensus rule set um, that represents, then, I mean, that can get kind of hairy. But I think it's critical to recognize that um, each of those institutions has agency to, uh, to, to pick one or the other. It's not like, you know, uh, anyone's really able to dictate, um, what the, what the right Bitcoin is. So that, that really, again, it sort of makes an analysis of control, uh, fairly difficult, but it keeps the system very resilient, um, and, and fluid, uh, in terms of, you know, responding to, uh, to takeovers like Segwit2x. Yeah. And I think another point that you made that I just wanted to really highlight and make sure the listeners don't lose that point either is how you were mentioning the fact that people moved quickly on this does not necessarily mean they were forced into it. And I think kind of there there are parallels in the way that some people view government regulation of markets. So they might say things like, oh, look, all those four big competitors move their prices together at the same time that maybe that's a cartel or maybe there's some kind of hidden arrangement there but at the same time that could also be each of those four competitors in the market actually just shifting to adjust and recognize the changing conditions in the market so say there's different supply and demand and whatever they all individually wanted to change their prices so in a similar sense every you know honest bitcoin miner wanted to change to obviously um, run the code that was not vulnerable to the 17144 bug. 
Yeah, I think that's totally spot on. And, um, you know, it's, it's oftentimes hard to, to disentangle correlation from causation. So it's just another example of that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I suppose uh, while we're on that topic of the inflation bug, do you believe uh, I, this is actually a similar question I asked uh, Jameson actually, and um, wondering what your thoughts are. Let's say the inflation bug had been exploited on you know Bitcoin's main net rather than just on the test net. Mm-hmm. Do you believe there would have been sufficiently strong consensus to roll back to a non-inflationary chain? Yeah, it's. Um, it, I, I guess I would be surprised if that didn't end up happening. Um, I mean, obviously, this is like speculation on my part as an individual and not a reflection of uh, the, the Bitcoin Core repository or anything. But yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think it would have been on the on the one hand, I think that we probably would have um, reorged. I mean, obviously, we would have realized it pretty quickly um, because people were monitoring for that. Um, but uh, we, we probably would have would have done a reorg, um, and I, I think you know this is again another situation where you have a collection of individuals coming together, um, you know, presumably delegates from the major exchanges and so forth, and um, uh, you know they would opt in on an individual basis to, to something like that. Um, uh, I have a hard time seeing not, like seeing a, a case where that that wouldn't have happened. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I think it would have been a huge setback for the system in terms of, uh, general trust in, in the technology. Um, uh, but it's hard to say, um, yeah, I, I'm not really confident one way or another there, but I, I do think that, that likely, you know, um, th- there is this, this like sort of interesting, um, mechanism there in terms of these like sort of agreed upon rollbacks um, for interpretation of you know it's, it's sort of like the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law but obviously you want to be careful there because um, I, I think uh, the the Dow uh, reversion was was pretty objectionable in my opinion um, I certainly wouldn't want to see Bitcoin ever go down a road like that but um, I, I think if you had a sort of technical fault at, at, um, at the level of the inflation bug or, or, you know, when we had the, the accidental fork back in 2013 due to uh, level DB, um, misconfiguration, you know, that, that was an example of a, a reorg that happened um, as a result of something deeply technical. So, um, you know, it, it would surprise me if we didn't resolve that, um, with, with the reorg, the, the inflation bug, but on the other hand, I mean, <laughs> Things uh, things have been pretty contentious in terms of uh, uh, the whole SegWit activation thing, so I, I almost wouldn't be surprised if that turned into a snafu itself. So it's hard to say. Yeah, good points. I mean, it's kind of intuitively, I think most people who buy into Bitcoin do so because of the 21 million hard cap, and therefore probably they would support this kind of action. But obviously, you do have to consider that if it took time to realize and then do the correction, those people who did a transaction in the period before getting rolled back and their transactions got reorged out, they would lose out of this, obviously. So the question then would just be, what would the what would be best for the overall system and would people actually do that? Um, but I think another related question and, and just around 
you know, Bitcoin forking and so on. Have you had any thoughts on, let's say Bitcoin does integrate more deeply with financial services and so on, and then there's ETFs. Do you have any thoughts on what might be an appropriate fork detection and fork you know, policy for ETFs if they were to offer, you know, obviously Bitcoin investment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I think um, that's, that's another tough one to codify. You know, I, th- I think uh, in general, um, one of my broad responses to Angela's critiques was that as soon as you start to really put structure around um, metrics like decentralization or, you know, which fork is the right one or, you know, who should be a contributor and who shouldn't be. I think you introduce these, these models that, that can be kind of gamed and exploited. Um, and so in general, I mean, I, I really like the fluidity of how uh, Bitcoin as a system is, is organized. And I think, you know, going back to, to what you said earlier about um, about uh, people being incentivized to sort of, um, you know, protect their, their uh, coins in, in, uh, in the case of the, the inflation reorg, um, I think provided everyone is sort of properly incentivized, um, then, you know, the system just kind of works. Like, uh, in the case of the inflation bug, um, you know, if you're a miner, um, you're incentivized not to exploit that bug because, um, you know, obviously if you do that, then your, your significant, um, capital costs are, are, are are going to go to waste and um you know so so i think like uh ha- having incentives set up the right way is the really important thing um and and coming up with you know concrete metrics for for things like forks and like which which fork is the right one um uh, i i just you know i i don't i don't have any great answers there for you i mean um in a technical sense fork detection is is pretty easy um but uh, in terms of having some kind of automatic guidance um, for, for an ETF, uh, that's, that's a bigger question that I need to think about. Um, but generally, I, I, I'm optimistic, you know, even, even in light of a lot of my uncertainties about Bitcoin and, and maybe my inability to articulate uh, the way these dynamics work, um, I'm very encouraged because I think that in general, there's a sort of like, intolerance of the minority there or an intolerant minority in, in the Bitcoin consensus um, in, in the sense that um, almost it's, it's easier to sort of constrict the protocol like a, a soft fork versus a hard fork is really just a constriction of the rule set whereas a hard fork is an expansion of the rule set so uh, when you do a hard fork um, you're basically a- allowing things that were previously invalid to be valid so um, it's a lot easier to sort of go the other direction and make things that were previously valid invalid. And so that's, that's the way that the Bitcoin ends up changing. And um, I think that makes a lot more likely that the, the attributes of Bitcoin that we all sort of um, rely on in terms of its identity, you know, the, the 21 million coin cap and um, you know, the fact that we validate signatures um those things are going to stay intact and um, we're just going to keep layering rules on instead of um, having, you know, these sort of cataclysmic uh, changes to Bitcoin's identity. So um, 
in terms of you know which forks will win out if there are forks I, I can't tell you that but I, I can tell you that there's a very promising uh, streak of conservatism in uh, Bitcoin's culture and rule set. Yeah, excellent thoughts. I think it's you're right to point out the the many difficulties in this. And the second you start placing certain metrics, those metrics can be gamed. And so then a person who's trying to maliciously fork Bitcoin could try to perhaps influence the fork in such a way as to influence the way an ETF might you know, under its rules or its charter might be forced to decide, oh, this is the true Bitcoin. And then we're kind of entering back into this whole game of, uh, you know, political governance as opposed to, you know, the Bitcoin approach, which is more like peer-to-peer network governance. Um, and, and I think, right. yep, yeah, sure. And I think another interesting question that I can throw at you here is, as compared to the idea of, you know, quote-unquote power or control, how about the concept of influence? What are the legitimate ways a person who perhaps they're a developer or not, how do they gain influence in Bitcoin? Is it skillful contributions? Is it leadership? Is it education? Yeah, I, I think it's all of the above. And um, at, at, at the risk of sounding trite, um, I think it's one of the closest examples of, of a meritocracy that I've ever participated in. Um, I, becoming influential in Bitcoin um, is really predicated on doing good work and whether that's, you know, um, uh, being a good speaker or hosting a good podcast or filing a good pull request um, or, uh, you know, say in the case of David Harding, doing excellent technical writing. Um, you know, there are all kinds of ways you can contribute. And I, and I think your recognition in the community, much like uh, other open source communities, is is really predicated on um uh, exemplifying good work. Uh, and I haven't really seen counterexamples of that. I mean, I, I, I think what's important is I've seen examples of um, people who were in, uh, you know, official positions. I, I don't necessarily want to name any names, but, you know, maybe um, some of the former key holders of the Bitcoin Core repository who, um, you know, were in these these officially recognized positions uh, to, to the greatest extent that there is in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, and uh, they, you know, sort of uh, didn't, didn't just kind of hang on to that position just, just because they were there. Um, you know, as soon as they start stopped contributing materially um, or as soon as the quality of their contributions, you know, wasn't really, um, sort of recognized by the, the community at large, then, um, you know, their tenure there ended. So I, I think that's a really important um, demonstration of uh, just how meritocratic Bitcoin actually is. Right. And I think the other, well, perhaps just to re, just to paraphrase that, that's sort of saying there are certain positions that might, to an outsider, might look like they hold certain level of, a certain level of power, um, but in reality whether you're a Bitcoin core maintainer or whether you have the Bitcoin alert keys or whatever, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean people will, at the end of the day, will they run your code? And ultimately, if there's a, so long as there are enough people who perhaps monitor code and sort of advise 
kind of less technical people, oh, hey, don't run this code because it's got a bug or this bug, this code has 22 million cap instead of 21 million cap, then people, you know, people can choose which code they wish, they wish to run. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I, I was actually, um, I was reading Angela's paper, uh, which is called Deconstructing De- Decentralization, Exploring the Core Claim of Crypto Systems. I was reading that earlier uh, today. Um, just to kind of brush up. And I, I kind of, as I was reading, I thought of a, a, an interesting thought experiment, which is, um, let's say that um, you had a sort of team of like shadow core devs who, you know, hadn't made anything at all public, you know, we're, we're basically just schooling up on Bitcoin um, behind the scenes without telling anybody and just like kind of diligently working. And, and then you had us kind of, you know, doing what we're doing today. Um, if this this you know shadow team of core devs came out of the woodwork and um, came up with all these awesome improvements and demonstrated competence that was well and above you know um, what what we're doing today, um, and they went and you sort of individually convinced you know the community and and um, you know the various businesses involved with Bitcoin that that they were better stewards of the protocol than you know the current core contributors. I, you could see an immediate switch, right? Like um, they could immediately displace us. There's no, there's no like <laughs> sort of incumbency, but it's, you know. Fire the core devs, James. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, please. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but, you know, you, that, that can't happen in say uh, a publicly owned company. Um, I, I guess in the marketplace it can happen. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think that the, the very fact that that is a possibility um, kind of undermines this idea of, of like a power structure. Right, yeah. It sort of reminds me of like those movies where you've got, um, you know, the clone of you and but it's like you with like slightly more intelligence or certain <laughs> other capabilities and there'd be like the shadow Peter Wooler and the shadow Greg Maxwell. And <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. They all have beards if the original doesn't have a beard and is clean shaven if the original uh, has a beard. <laughs> that's right the uh you know it'd be like the maximum stats version and then you've got to like try and compete against your shadow self to who can you know code better yeah make for a good movie yeah yeah i think the bitcoin core the movie <laughs> yeah uh, okay so what about this one so to what extent and i think you you were touching on this around this idea of conservatism within bitcoin so to what extent is inertia keeping bitcoin the way it is and one concept there might be and this is like a very famous kind of philosophical experiment or thought experiment is this idea of the ship of theseus so could we ever see a scenario where every piece of bitcoin has been changed but slowly step by step over time but it's still recognized as bitcoin in the eyes of the hodlers yeah, I, I think this is a really um, a really interesting topic, and I and I love uh, the ship of Theseus. That's the, the, that comes up a lot um, in my personal life. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, yeah, I you know I'm I'm really hoping that basically uh, Bitcoin will eventually ossify. Um, and you know, if you think of like say the HTTP protocol. Um, in the early days, um, somebody introduced a status code uh, uh, 418. I'm a teapot, um, you know, <laughs> on top of your 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 sort of you know more familiar status codes like 200 success and, and all that. 
Um, and, and they were able to do that, I think, in the early days because it was a young protocol. It was very malleable. Um, and someone could come along and suggest, you know, a, a status code they had for April Fool's Day, and that could happen. But as the years went on and as HTTP, HTTP was deployed widely, um, you know, you're not able to change it as much. And um, I'm really hoping that Bitcoin, you know, rather shortly gets to the point where it's just so so solidified and so consistent that um, that changes are, are really rare. Um, but I, I think you have to realize that there's basically this continuum between, um, you know, decentralization in, in say, say it's perfect sense, um, and the ability to change, right? So if you're perfectly decentralized and everybody's, um, you know, no, no one person has a sway or influence, um, greater than anyone else, you can't make changes to the system, um, Whereas on, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, if there's, you know, Bitcoin CEO, then tomorrow an edict can come down that we're going to, um, you know, go in a particular direction and change can happen very rapidly. So I think, you know, when Satoshi was initially writing this code, it, that was obviously on one end of the spectrum and he was in complete control. Um, but as it was deployed and, and um, adopted by, uh, by other people and, you know, had institutional growth around it and a big community of developers come up and a huge user base, then we start to slide down that continuum towards towards decentralization. And so I think as we slide further and further that way, then it, it becomes it becomes harder and harder to make to make uh, big changes. Um, and ultimately, one day we'll end up um, uh, with a very cemented uh, idea of what Bitcoin is, and and all the innovation and change will will, will happen on the second layers and. You know, we'll be uh, we'll have the good fortune of having a very steady, um, unchanging protocol to to sit on top of. Right, fantastic points. And I think another interesting question to bring up related to that is, okay, so it's true right now to say that if you download an Iran Bitcoin from the early days, and my understanding is, assuming you did some minor fixes, for example, that Berkeley level DB fix uh, back from 2013. That Bitcoin code would still sync to Bitcoin as it is today. That's right. Yep. Now the question then is that may not always be true in the future, though. As I understand, there may be hard forks coming in the future. So, for example, this uh, Y two thousand and thirty eight bug, though obviously not obviously, but that one won't be uh, kind of mandatory for another 80 years or so, mm-hmm. or perhaps if some kind of hard fork was required to someday bring in quantum resistant cryptography. So we sort of have that, you know, that over, we have that right now that we can say, yes, Bitcoin, you, you know, you download the early client from the early days and you, it'll sync up to Bitcoin as it is today. But perhaps that won't always be true in the future. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um I know that the amount that we can do with softworks is 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 pretty uh, is 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 pretty significant. But um, to be honest with you, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a consensus expert. And so uh, while I know that we can do some pretty impressive things, I, I think that there is a certain class of things that we may need to uh, do with hard forks. Um, but it's really hard to say ahead of time, you know exactly what those will be. And um, I, I mean, certainly you point out the, uh, the Y2083 bug. Um, uh, 
but uh, you know, we have we have a good amount of time to figure that out. And I, I think maintaining backwards compatibility is an absolutely huge consideration, and it would really take something exceptional, um, uh, something that that you know was was mandatory or kind of threatened uh, the network in a very profound way to abandon that that backwards compatibility. So um, yeah, I can't say with certainty when or if if that day will come. Yeah, fair fair points to uh, make there, James. Um, look, I think we've done enough on this whole idea of con- this concept of you know power and change in Bitcoin. Let's talk a little bit about um, you had a, a mailing list uh, suggestion that you came up with, uh, and I think it's called Assume UTXO. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what spurred this idea and what's the background on it? Yeah, sure thing. So um, anybody who's set up a, a Bitcoin D node in the the past, uh, well, I guess anybody who's ever set up a Bitcoin D node is familiar with the idea that um, you have to do a pretty lengthy process called um, the initial block download when you first start up uh, your Bitcoin node. And um, that, that process is sort of key to what Bitcoin is because it entails getting data about the blockchain from um, the peer-to-peer network, uh, i.e. other people running the same software that you are. Um, downloading those blocks from them, uh, and then um, connecting the blocks uh, to form the full blockchain, and um, in the meantime, verifying everything. Um, so that process is 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 totally critical to Bitcoin, um, but it's it takes a long time, you know. So now, if you go and set up a Bitcoin node, um, if you have a really really fast computer with a really great internet connection, it should take on the order of like four hours. Um, but unfortunately, if you know you're on a sort of lower power device like a Raspberry Pi and maybe have spotty internet, it could take upwards of three, four days. So um, as a result, you know people who want to transact uh, on the Bitcoin network are kind of incentivized to using solutions um, that don't provide the full degree of security that a full node does. So. Um, you can download a, a light client, say like Electrum um, or uh, many of the other wallets available. And um, those programs operate under uh, a mode called Simple Payment Verification uh, or SPV. And um, basically, those programs don't do any kind of full verification of blocks. Um, they, they retrieve the headers chain, which is um, given by miners. but um, uh, if, if they want detailed information, they have to go out and, and sort of request it from other nodes on the network and, and uh, just sort of trust, you know, based on that headers chain that it's accurate. So that's, that's not great. Um, and obviously anybody who's using one of these light clients isn't, um, isn't doing consensus validation, isn't helping the network by serving blocks. Um, and so uh, we, we want to do everything that we can to make it easy for people to, to, to participate, um, you know, in, in that kind of complete way. Uh, so this idea of um, assume UTXO is, is one way of kind of expediting that initial setup process um, so that you can uh, start to use Bitcoin um, with, with a slightly modified security model, but you're still 
able to fully validate blocks that, as they come in, um, and you're stable, still able to, to transact fairly immediately. So the, the general idea of it is, um, is that as we're building up the blockchain, we maintain this, this data structure called the uh, UTXO set. And um, the UTXO set is basically the spent of um, the, the, the set of unspent transaction outputs that we have. Um, so we keep that in kind of a map for easy lookup. Um, and the idea of assume UTXO is if you can take a snapshot of this data structure and hash its contents, then you could say, hey, you know, at height 500,000, uh, I expect uh, a UTXO set whose contents hash to this value. And if, if you can then build that into the software, um, then basically what you can do is load uh, a, a, what, I, what, what I call a UTXO snapshot, which is a serialized version of the UTXO set, which is only about three gigabytes relative to the, the 200 gigabytes that a uh, full blockchain is. So you can load that in, and you can kind of fast forward your blockchain up to that point and then do uh, a sync from the network to get to what we call the tip or the latest block that the network has seen. Um, and that takes, um, you know, on the order of sort of a constant amount of time relative to, uh, you know, a linear amount of time um, with re respect to the length of the blockchain. Um, so after you've you sort of loaded your chain relatively quickly, then in the background, you can start to do an initial block download from scratch. And um, the point of doing this is to fully validate the point up to where you started the snapshot. Um, so if you'd like, we can talk a little bit about um, the details of, of how this all works, but that's the general point. Right, and so I suppose just to, um, re uh, so that what it's doing then is essentially setting up Bitcoin Core in such a way that a newbie can download it and just use it much faster while in the background they could still uh, take on, download the full blockchain data and do their own verification, but at the start sort of put place trust into certain trusted individuals. And I suppose depending on how it's set up, it, you know, there might be certain core developers who... Um, who they are trusting implicitly um, to give the correct hash of the UTXO set. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I, I might phrase it a little bit differently. So, so right now, um, there is a parameter in Bitcoin Core called assume valid. And this is the um, hash of a, of a block at a certain height, before which, uh, when we're doing this initial block download, we just assume that all previous blocks um, have have valid signatures up until that point. Right. The idea being that basically there's so much work on top of this point that you know it's, it's sort of ridiculous to think that um, that those signatures would not be valid, assuming the block hashes match. So uh, the, the way that that parameter is established is uh, an open review process um, that is just another pull request against the Bitcoin core repository that anybody can, can you know, comment on and uh, dissent or disagree with or spot check. Um, and uh, so this, this would be an analogous process. And, and I, can, I can see someone kind of having a gut reaction that's like, whoa, you know, trust in the developers, what's going on here? 
Um, but really, these parameters, if nothing else, are, are a sort of clearer indication of where you are trusting other people. Because for every change that's merged into Bitcoin, you know, unless you're scrutinizing the code changes, then then you you really can't be certain that that's not doing something kind of nefarious. Whereas with these parameters, it's it's a very clear indication that hey, look, you should try and validate what's going on here. You should during this review process try and reproduce, get the same hash, and make sure that, that this is actually the thing that you want. So anyway, in the case of Assume ETXO, it's it's really just a continuation of the same Assume Valid model that's that's currently in Bitcoin. Yep, and. What's the response been? So I noticed there was some discussion of other ideas such as uh, FastSync by Nicola Dorier for BTC Pay Server. And I suppose uh, as you, you know, that is essentially an indicator that people are already trying to do this kind of thing. Um, so was that part of your thinking as well that, well, maybe it's time to now try and pull this or to have something similar in Bitcoin Core directly? Yeah, exactly. I think it's pretty clear to me that... Um people are going to start doing something resembling this process, you know, whether or not uh, Bitcoin Core facilitates it. And um, I, I think it's really important to do it the right way because uh, this, this would be an easy thing to screw up um, if, if you were to you know, try and uh, build something on your own. Um, for example, with FastSync, I think it's you know, cool that, that Nicholas um, has experimented with this stuff and... Uh, you know, gotten something that works for his use case. But I think if you were to really industrialize that or recommend that, that a lot of people use it, it, it wouldn't really be a great outcome because um, now, you know, instead of uh, scru really scrutinizing the Bitcoin Core repo and um, following changes there, now you basically have two sources that you really have to scrutinize. And so you have to scrutinize Bitcoin Core and you have to go and make sure that you're like checking out all the stuff in Nicholas's private repo and you know, kind of implicitly trusting Nicholas there. Um, uh, and furthermore, um, Nicholas's FastSync kind of relies on um, being signed, uh, doing GPG signing um, by him and other people who, who uh, check his thing out. And it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, signature verification is a notoriously um, uh, under-attended process uh, by users. So, uh, we want to build something into Bitcoin ultimately that um, is secure without you having to, to sort of, you know, uh, download your Bitcoin D program and then go somewhere else and download this UTXO snapshot and like verify the signatures because uh, I just I just don't think you know many people will actually do that and that introduces a, a profound security risk. So um, we really want to do this the right way. We really want to think it through. Um, and uh, uh, take our time to, to roll something out that, that really works um, and, and has a high degree of security. Uh, so, so far, the, the reception has been pretty positive. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's still kind of early. The mailing list post went up last week. So I think we're going to take a, you know, a decent amount of time to kind of gather feedback. And if, if anybody has any thoughts on this stuff, then um, I encourage them to, to reach out to me. But um, you know, I think this is a, a really good demonstration of uh, the sort of the process that maybe we were alluding to earlier um, when we were talking about the, you know, the, the uh, influence structure of, of Bitcoin or the, you know, the quote unquote power dynamics is like uh, this is this is super early in the pipeline. And um, 
almost anybody can get involved and, and express their, uh, their outlook here. So um, uh, I encourage you to do so. Fantastic. And look, James, while we've got you here, let's talk a little bit about just the process of core development. So I think uh, some of my listeners might like to hear some insights uh, that you might have around how, if, if they would like to contribute code, if you have any wisdom to share with them. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, the prospect of, of working on Bitcoin Core is, is a really exciting one. Um, and uh, it's, it's something that I encourage uh, you know, anybody interested in software engineering to, to take a look at. But it's really, really hard. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's just, you know, uh, it's, it, it's just a really hard thing to, to sort of get involved with because there's a ton of context. Um, you know, the, the subject domain is inherently complicated. Um, and uh, it's, it's an environment where everybody is sort of rightfully suspicious of everybody else because, um, because of the critical nature of, uh, of the software. Um, so I, I, I guess um, my advice to people who are really interested in, in becoming um, contributors is uh, um, w- one of the things that, um, that, that we sometimes see uh, new contributors do is come along and like jump into the code base and uh, you know they think, okay, well, I want to make a change. You know, I want to I want to make a, a productive contribution. Um, I'm going to go through and do a bunch of like refactoring, or I'm going to like bring the code base up to uh, you know C plus plus fourteen or C plus plus eleven standards. Um, and uh, you know, like someone will file this this giant PR that you know changes a few keywords or shuffles a few functions around. Um, and what they may not necessarily realize is that um, refactoring in, in Bitcoin Core is, is a really kind of dicey prospect uh, because it, it's, it's really, it's a project that's unlike many others in the sense that, um, you know, any marginal change to Bitcoin has to be really thoroughly scrutinized. Um, and so, you know, sometimes shuffling stuff around be, because it's a better design or, or, or because it's kind of, you know, marginally more... Uh, uh, easily comprehensible isn't always the right move because it's a it's a huge vulnerability or it's a huge opportunity for things to go wrong. Um, so, as a result, um, I think my advice is if if you really want to get involved, then um, start to participate in the review process and watch changes. You know, so maybe pick pick an area or two of the the code base where you feel like you're really interested and have the capacity to understand, read through yourself, um, you know, maybe pick, pick a few high level operations, like, you know, how does initial block download work or what happens when the software receives a new block from the network and, you know, step through the code, figure out what's happening um, and then try and participate in the review process. And um, eventually, you know, uh, maybe after you browse some of the, uh, the issues uh, in the issue queue, there's a there's a tag called uh, good first issue which I recommend checking out. You know maybe eventually um, you know you, you come up with a useful change and submit it and, and it gets accepted. Um, so that's that's generally my advice for people who want to get involved. I know it's it's just a really it's a really strange project. It's it's <laughs> unlike for sure any other software project I've worked on. Um, just just because of the level of um, you know scrutiny and and uh, um, and the level of care that that the 
developers involved have to take. Right, and I've seen examples where someone tried to, I think, refactor certain code and it took like a year to basically deal with all the different pieces of feedback that came up and all the constant other changes that were happening. Um, are there any insights you can share around that? Totally. Um, yeah, Russ Yanofsky, who's another uh, another employee here at Chaincode, um, has been working on separating the, uh, the wallet from the node um, in an effort to um, basically make development easier in the sense that there are certain changes we could rule out as not being, you know, consensus critical because they're in a separate process. But he, he started, uh, he came up with his draft for this, you know, like, uh, I think more than two years ago and he had a functioning prototype two years ago and had a bunch of changes proposed. And, you know, in, in, in say, like if you were at a software company, you know, working on, on some closed source piece of software, you might expect, uh, his change to be, you know, fairly substantial, but it, but it might be merged, you know, within a month or two. Um, but it's two years later, and you know, he's he's done a really great job of making those changes granular and really um, having a lot of patience and persistence um, in in getting him through. But uh, you know, we're still in the middle of that project, and there's still a lot of review to be done. So it's just a completely different ball game in in terms of the the level of uh, detail and scrutiny involved. Yeah, there's a lot there, uh, a lot to kind of uh, unpack there. Um, how about any areas where Bitcoin Core de development differs from other software projects? Yep. So, um, yeah, I, working on Bitcoin Core is, is, is kind of counterintuitive to a lot of conventional software wisdom. Um, for example, uh, uh, one of the things that um, that is thought a lot about is how to how to reduce dependencies. So typically, you know, in a software project, when you're working on uh, accomplishing something, you want to go out and find pre-existing libraries that can help you do whatever it is you want to get done. So, um, you know, you might go out and find a, an object relational mapper if you want to deal with database and pull that in, or or you know, some kind of a web framework. Um, but in Bitcoin, um, any additional dependency that we take on is, is, is sort of a vulnerability because it's a code base that's, um, you know, that's changing kind of outside of the lifecycle of Bitcoin. It might have a lot of extraneous code that we don't necessarily need. Um, and so as a result, we, we really want to avoid inclusion of dependencies. Um, uh, we're trying right now to strip out um, boost, um, which is a C++ library that just does a bunch of different things. We're trying, um, I think we're close, if not done with stripping at OpenSSL, um, because at this point um, we've, we've implemented a lot of the crypto that we need. So uh, that's definitely a departure from kind of conventional software engineering. Um, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, uh, refactoring for the sake of refactoring is is, uh, is is sort of discouraged. Um, so refactoring only happens when it's when there's a really really practical reason for it. Um, and in general, the the iteration cycles are just much longer. Um, the the burden uh, of review is is a, is a bit higher. So you might need multiple contributors to uh, approve your changes before they go in. And um, and uh, in general, it's it, it's I think beneficial to to sort of take things a bit slower um, and just to make sure that we've, we've thought through all the changes that eventually do go in. Fantastic. Well, 
look, I think we're pretty much coming to time. So, James, if you've got any uh, closing thoughts or parting thoughts you want to leave for the listeners, um, yeah, maybe you feel free to give them that now. And also, lastly, just tell them where they can find you and follow you. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, keep keep uh, using Bitcoin, <laughs> I guess is my <laughs> only thought. Um, yeah, the... Uh... <laughs> The Federal Reserve is is uh, doing some pretty interesting stuff. So um, I'm I'm at least I, I sleep a lot better at night uh, knowing that Bitcoin is uh, is alive and well. So I hope that continues to be the case, um, and it it can't happen without users. So um, keep using Bitcoin. Um, in general, I'm on the internet at um, uh, at James O'B on Twitter and um, the same on GitHub. And uh, you can email me at uh, james at chaincode.com. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks, James. It's been an excellent discussion. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, Stefan. It was a pleasure. I hope you guys got some good insights out of that discussion with James. I hope everyone listening has a bit more deeper appreciation of the elusive nature of you know what truly who who truly holds the power within Bitcoin. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that and make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can find the iPhone and Android and RSS links on my website, stefanlevera.com. As usual, if you enjoyed it and you want to help me out, make sure you retweet and share the episode. That's it for me. Thanks for listening and I'll speak soon. Bye.